What's up, you digital dreamers? It's Library Punk. I'm Justin. I'm a scholar communications librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. Uh, I work IT at a public library, and my pronouns are she, they. I'm Jay. I'm an academic uh, metadata librarian. My pronouns are he, him, and Arthur's here, too. What are Arthur's pronouns? Arthur's pronouns are um, your majesty and your royal highness because he is a king. So, that's, Oh, that's right. Put some I, respect on the name. I feel like I've asked that before. <laughs> um, fucking dumb. <laughs> My name is Carrie. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a health sciences librarian. And we have guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves? My name is Mary Posner. I am a professor at UCLA in the Information Studies Department, and my pronouns are she and her. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Matt Hanna, and I'm an assistant professor of digital humanities at Purdue University, and my pronouns are he, him. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We got talking, was it just last episode? No, the episode with Article Finder Network. Uh, we got talking about digital humanities because Jay and I saw a really cool digital humanities presentation a couple weeks ago that I saw some new tools that I hadn't seen in a while. And I was like, I have not been keeping up with digital humanities stuff since grad school when they were like, this is where your job, this is where your history degree will get you a job. Mm. And uh, it didn't. <laughs> um, and did it get you a job? No. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I think it's incredibly oh. relevant. I select for the sciences. So, no, not really. William and Mary right. didn't even do digital humanities when I was there. <laughs> oh, I, I dabbled in digital humanities for a hot minute, too. Um, from about 2010 to 2013. So, yeah, I've been there, done that as well. Signs your child is dabbling with digital humanities. <laughs> yeah. Is, has your child been texting about digital humanities? <laughs> LOL, loss of lag. Um, LOL, loss of labor. Anyway, we're going to talk about digital humanities and and political economy. And so we're just going to jump right into it. And I wanted to ask for people who may not be familiar with the digital humanities, what are they? That is so contentious. It's like uh, the subject of a lot of uh, (laughs) agitation. Always. A lot of debates. Even. Yeah, a lot of debates about in the digital, digital humanities. humanities. Indeed. I have a really simple definition that works for me. And I just say always digital humanities is the use of digital tools to explore humanities questions. And both parts are important. Like you're using the digital tools and 
hopefully exciting, interesting ways that are challenging. And then you're exploring the humanities questions because, of course, you don't ever answer a humanities question that's not the way the humanities works. You don't ever find the true meaning of Jane Eyre or anything like that. So that's that that definition has always just served me just fine. What about you, though, Matthew? See, my plan was to pause long enough oh. so that you would have to <laughs> tackle that. But uh, like it a works. good Marxist, my <laughs> definition is dialectical. So oh, I see. Half of it is applying uh, computational tools to the humanities, and the other half is applying the humanities to computational tools and technology. And so one of the things I'm interested in is how can we use humanistic forms of critique to analyze things like data, algorithms, artificial yeah. intelligence, uh, social media, things like that. And so I'm kind of trying to do both and. That's really good. I like that. He must be a communist. <laughs> I feel like if I were in the movie Stalker and like went through the zone to go to the room that grants your deepest desire, it would be like, what the hell is the digital humanities? I want to know. That would be what the zone would tell me. <laughs> and then everybody else in the zone would just shake their head sadly. Like, that's your deepest desire, huh? Yeah, I'd be like, fuck who is you, it the Jay. Fuck you. <laughs> go fuck yourself. Are, are we slandering Tarkovsky right now? No, no, that's what we'd be yelling at you for for going to oh, the zone to find I out. Like, like, I think we're specifically thanks for wasting our time. <laughs> <laughs> Three hours into the movie, we get to the zone, and then somebody says, "What is digital humanities?" God, seventy-six shots into an eighty-eight shot movie. Yeah, <laughs> the crowd boost. <laughs> there's, there's the dog. Yeah, I tried doing that many shots and I didn't finish the movie. Yeah, Tarkovsky. Uh, I got sleepy. Um, <laughs> An acquired taste. <laughs> I'll finish it one day. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I do get you sleepy me, a lot though. <laughs> Solaris. <laughs> Yeah, that was more or less like there, there's societies called like what the Society of Computing Computers and Humanities, or Humanities and Computing. It sounds it sounds kind of really out of date now. Whenever it, I read it, it does. But they had a like a session where they were like, "Should we change it?" And everyone was like, "No, it's fine," because it's as vague as everyone wants it to be. And I think we we kind of had some a little bit of this came up. When Kyle from Agab Pod, Labor Kyle, was talking about digital humanities being sort of like this tool that reaches out into uh, into between the academy and the community, and, and gives us a, a way of um, you know defining new structures to yeah. do things in a different way. So in that situation, we were talking about like providing video games as art, and and all we were talking about industry issues. But yeah, he was, he's a big digital humanities person. That was, I think, when I first started thinking about we should do an episode about this. That's cool. um, so then we were recommended you. Uh, uh, I've reached out on Twitter and everyone, I was like, tell, tell me someone who's doing something cool in digital humanities and I want to hear about it. <laughs> and I think and everybody like, always says Miriam. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, everyone agrees that Miriam herself is not cool, but Miriam can <laughs> talk about cool things <laughs> when pressed. And the second definition I want to get out of the way is uh, what is political economy? Because we're going to be talking about that a little bit. I'm going to let Matthew take that one. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and, you know, I just wrote a piece that's coming on debates in the digital humanities that's basically trying to advocate for a Marxist political economy for this discipline or field or whatever you want to call it. And so when I think of 
political economy and specifically Marxist political economy, I think what it refers to is moving beyond thinking of economics as some kind of independent force out in the world that exists and that structures our lives and our material conditions and that's sort of an objective sort of universal thing. And really thinking about it in terms of politics and in terms of ideology and in terms of social conditions and material conditions and connecting those things together. And uh, so for Marxists, this means thinking through things like class relations and putting class relations back into the to the equation. And so one of my sort of particular interests in digital humanities is trying to figure out what a class analysis of digital humanities might look like and what a, a, a political economy of digital humanities might look like and how we could make the discipline or field a little bit more egalitarian or fair or equal and respond really to a sort of persistent critique of DH, which is that it is part of a neoliberal takeover of the university. And, you know, in the article, I basically say, let's not say that DH is not part of the neoliberal takeover of the university because everything is part of neoliberalism. You can't escape that, especially if you're not, if you're at a major university in the United States. So instead, let's imagine how we can maneuver within and from below within this neoliberal sort of hegemony and think about what ways can we mitigate those things? What ways can we promote solidarity and, and those kinds of questions? And so when I think about political economy in a Marxist sense, I think about really trying to connect things together that um, that economists might say, well, it's just economics, you know, this is separate from class or from that sort of thing. I'm so happy you say that because there was, uh, for the longest time, I was very like anti-digital humanities. I went into no part of it because it just felt this like, like hollow neoliberal nonsense of let's text mine haughty trust for no reason like it didn't feel like i had a purpose and that's all i ever heard about it doing so thank you both for being on and like having those really good definitions of things and showing well, that no it's one's not saying just it's that not it's, also no, it's that. not that yeah it's also that but yeah i was so hesitant because i'm like you know they're just caring about things now because computers are involved man mm, no so, there is certainly yeah that's a valid critique yeah but um you know i think Digital humanities has been around now long enough to pick up people who have different politics, perhaps, than those of the some of the founding members of the community, or have different reasons for getting involved than some of the earlier administrators. Um, I think probably Matthew and I are an example of a couple people with different politics, but also from the beginning, especially uh, women of color have critiqued digital humanities like vociferously from within. If you if you look up um, some of the work that Moya Bailey and Anne Conquin and Amanda Phillips, Fiona Barnett did, like you know, back in 2010. Uh, when you guys were dismissing DH, you know, I mean, they've been levying those critiques for a long time, and I think they've made a real impact. Yeah, because I'm I'm in a, a digital collections grant writing class right now, actually, and I'm I'm trying to like, and it is very uh, the good thing about the course is it's very straightforward. It's like here's what grant writers want. They want you to talk about DEI and they want you to talk about sustainability. And if you're not talking about those things, don't bother doing an application. 
Um, but there's also parts of it that are, you know, what kind of labor are you going to be writing into a grant? And so do you feel like that has kind of shaped how the digital humanities have, have gotten sort of this reputation early on? I always got the feeling they were sort of uh, doing it to keep history departments afloat mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. things like that. It's just, just based on what the ALA was telling me as a recent graduate and as a graduate student, it just that was the way it came off. Oh, there was there was a moment early on, I think, where um, and I I also have perpetuated this and been part of it, and and there was a narrative that if you do the digital humanities, you can get the grant funding, you can get the tenure line job or whatever it is, and none of which is really true. None of which turned out to be true, and sadly. You know, there are ways you can leverage some of the DH stuff, and I do believe, you know, like my job, I would not have gotten without the DH components. So I'm not totally a disbeliever either. But, you know, my question is, should we be doing things where we're basically the payoff is we'll get you a job, maybe. Uh, And uh, I just don't think that's really a healthy model. And I think now most people would say they don't they don't use that rhetoric anymore of like, oh, we're going to get everyone a job because they're doing digital humanities. And, you know, and it's it was, you know, and, and and the academy's falling apart. I mean, let's be real like if you're in a a large number of disciplines you are watching the total collapse of your field in real time especially in the post-covid era and so one of the questions i think miriam and i have come together on um is this notion of infrastructure and how we could speculate about better infrastructures that that don't sort of promise things that can't be delivered and instead promote things like solidarity Mm. you know for example and this is just my particular bugaboo, but um, for example, we are seeing unprecedented labor strikes across academia right now. Graduate yep. students are on strike. Like Columbia, <laughs> you know, you Michigan was on strike. And where are the uh, posts and solidarity from the major DH organizations? There's just no attention to it at all that I can see, and yeah. and that's just a shame. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, some of these associations and they're great groups. I mean, I love being part of them, but I just think, why aren't we putting up solidarity posts, even putting out calls for fundraising from some of the, you know, folks that are tenure track faculty. So um, that's one of the things we're working on right now uh, in terms of infrastructure is thinking about, you know, what I've started calling solidarity infrastructure. Mm, I like that. Well, I you know, ideas and why that might be. Well, and I think like yeah. labor, <laughs> labor in the ac- labor in the academy is just in crisis in general right now. Yeah. Because I mean, if you look at how student worker pay like shakes out, you can make more at Target than you can working IT at a university as a student worker. So I mean, like we can't. Like the fact that universities have relied so heavily on building up student employment as a means to fill labor gaps Mm -hmm. is really showing now because of how much COVID has changed that now. Well, I was listening as I was listening to, I think it was Jay, maybe Justin talking about the grant writing class and how DH, um, you know, historically has been so tied up with, with grant writing. I mean, for a long time, like, and still doing a DH project really depends on getting some outside funding from an outside funder, 
all of which are like large philanthropic organizations or uh, federal organizations. And so because of that, I think uh, many of the DH organizations have developed a kind of Lisa Simpson complex where we all want to be better and raise our hand higher and, and do better within the system that we've been kind of assigned rather than as in some other fields like African-American studies uh, or ethnic studies. Um, we haven't quite grasped that the, that, that system itself is, is something we need to work around rather than within speaking as a, you know, a perfect example of Elisa Simpson myself. I understand that <laughs> intimately. <laughs> I'm more of a Homer Simpson. <laughs> I'm both vegetarian, vegan, and Buddhist. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm none of those things, but yeah. <laughs> spiritually. Where does, where does Garfield fit into this universe? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Garfield energy. Yeah. That's you, Carrie. <laughs> yeah. Where's the lasagna? <laughs> God, that TikTok of that guy impersonating Matt Berry doing Garfield is living in my head rent free right now. <laughs> I don't charge rent for anything that lives in my head because I'm not a fucking landlord. You're not a landlord. Oh, wow. Oh, there you go. Wow. I was going to drink my wine. Sadie <laughs> took it to another level there. <laughs> so when. I was reading over some of the documents. You give us a lot, all of which are going to be in the notes because there's plenty for people to read through, but I had to cut it down. Please. So everyone had time to, everyone had time <laughs> to read, read something. Yeah. That's Lisa Simpson energy right there. That's right. You mentioned like the lab model of digital humanities. Is that a good starting point? I really don't know. Or do you want to talk about field level theories of political economy? Which, which way is the better way to tackle this, this political economy of digital humanities question? Matthew, do you want to talk about the lab model? I, th I think that was something you introduced. Sure. Um, so one of the ways in which we could think about, and I don't know if this is what you mean by the lab model, but you know, we've been thinking a lot about labs and things, and I've been doing some work with uh, various collaborators on labs. And one of the places that digital humanities often gets criticized um, as neoliberal right-wing or neoliberal sort of uh, administrative is from this notion of the lab. And so when you think about lab spaces as um, sucking up funding or thinking about, um, you know, absorbing resources that could go toward other areas of the university or maybe to pay student workers or whatever it might be. And digital humanities has really tried to build on the lab. So the lab really became a centerpiece for a lot of the work that folks were interested in doing. So we're getting a lot of funding to build labs and whatnot. And so one of the ways we could think about labs is, you know, I, I kind of joke around about a collaboratory places where you provide a space for redistribution of resources. So thinking of ways that if you are receiving funding from your university, what are you putting it toward? Obviously, some of that money might go toward equipment that you need for folks on campus, but are you thinking in a distributional way about folks that might exist in your area. And so um, some of the work we did was think about library liaisons, for example, and how library liaisons often get sort of cut off from the Digital Humanities Center or Digital Humanities Lab. And while they're often the source of much of the expertise in the area and a source of connection to researchers, scholars and things. And so, and, you know, we did a series of surveys 
of major digital humanities centers. And what we found is, yeah, exactly that. The, the liaisons rarely meet with the folks in the center. They're often sort of designed to be point people, but not actually integrated into any projects. They're very, very rarely given opportunities to train on methodologies that they might be interested in or digital humanities um, scholarship of any sort. And so to me, that's just another example of the inherent elitism of academia, which is to say that certain labor gets valued way more higher than, than other forms of labor. And, you know, I think a lab could be a space on campus to mitigate some of that if it's done thoughtfully from the beginning. So for example, here at Purdue, I got, um, you know, I was tasked with building a small space and I got a small grant from a data science initiative. And I redistributed that funding for graduate student conference travel. And basically, uh, the, the criteria to get the funding was you had to do something related to digital. And that was basically up to me to decide. And so I just, just started giving out these small grants for students to go places to do all kinds of interesting work in, in their disciplines. And, you know, that was very popular because there wasn't any other funding on campus for humanities graduate students to do that. Um, the other thing I like to do, if I'm running a lab, I try to integrate staff, uh, faculty, adjuncts, graduate students, even undergraduates, because there's often a weird dichotomy where continuing lecturers and adjuncts aren't included in little grants like that, where they don't get funding because they're not expected to be around. Often, though, they'll be around for like eight to 10 years or something. So it's like some of the early experiences I had really opened my eyes to the fact that adjuncts often feel like they're not connected at all. And so if you can give a little pot of money to an adjunct instructor who wants to build a really amazing digital humanities project, it's, they're, so, they're so excited about that because they just don't have those opportunities. Yeah, that um, stratification between uh, tenure track faculty and everybody else is so real, so real, 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 real. If, uh, if you're at an academic institution and I spent, you know, five years as staff before I moved into a tenure track role and it was like everything flipped immediately. Yeah, I, I can't say enough about how, how different everything became uh, when I became tenure track. And um, I think that... Um, yeah, a lot of faculty have no fucking clue how hard a lot of the staff work on campus, staff and adjunct faculty and librarians. And it is a yeah a continuing source of irritation that people are not rewarded as they should be for their labor on campus. Another component of this, too, I don't know about any of you, but... You know, when I went to graduate school, it was like I was at a public university and I thought, well, I'm at a public uni, like this will be cool. Everybody will be kind of like me, first gen academic, you know, first gen college student, first gen grad student, whatever. And I was shocked at how elitist everything was. Like I had, you know, in graduate school, I had colleagues who their parents bought them a home while they were attending graduate school at a public university, you know, and not even like one of the top 20 public universities. So it was really shocking to realize that the elitism and the class structure goes all the way down. Um, and that in fact, most people who are in academia are upper middle class sort of backgrounds. And they just did a study recently that showed that most people who get a PhD, I think something like a shocking amount, like 50% 
had a parent who also was an academic or had a PhD. So that's just another example of like the ways in which we can intervene. And digital humanities is a great space to do this because it is so inherently collaborative and because it breaks down a lot of hierarchical structures and that it is interested in networks of collaboration. But but sometimes I see the discipline falling into the same traps that it was putatively getting away from and reinforcing some of those things. So, and, you know, one of the things Miriam and I have become very interested in is why is there no Marxist digital humanities? Where are the Marxists? Where do they go? Marxism has been around in the academy and beyond for a long time. And we're seeing since 2016 a real resurgence in the United States of left-wing political populism. And yet nobody's talking about Marxism in DH. Well, that seems to be a really interesting phenomenon that I'd like to explore. Yeah. And sorry, this is just stuck in my head. When you were talking about the lab model, that was also because a lot of universities got really interested in DH and then didn't have... (laughs) <laughs> programs already funding. happening so they just tried to do it and that was why like oh, people ended up cut out yeah well now yeah you just got me thinking about that period when universities hired dumb postdocs like me to like start a center somehow on our own and you know of course we failed and burnt ourselves out but I guess what I wanted to say about DH and labor is that, you know, if you've talked to grad students or postdocs who've been around the block on DH projects, a lot of times they'll be a little bit cynical about, like, who gets billing, like, above the title as as the kind of project author and who's, like, below the line because, um, because of the context, the academic context of DH means that the hierarchy is replicated in the way that people are credited. So all of that is to say uh, less bluntly that like often the tenured faculty member whose name is on the project is not the one who's actually been doing the work on the project. And obviously that needs to change. One of the first things that I did when I got my job at UCLA was to sit down with a bunch of students and write a student collaborators bill of rights because I saw that our program was growing and that as the program grew and as you know faculty we didn't know got attracted to the program who could say exactly how they were going to decide who did what work and particularly how many of them were going to ask students to do labor that should be compensated but instead give them course credit that was my particular concern and so I'm proud that like we said no, like that, that should not happen. You know, if students are doing labor for you, they need to get paid. Uh, yeah. Gotta make that money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I'm sorry. And if someone else had something to say. No, I, I would feel bad <laughs> if, if we talked more than the guests. Uh, but yeah, when you said the, the faculty lead is not the person doing the work, I, I was just, I was just wanted to jump in, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But I was like, no, yeah, please. it's me. Because um, <laughs> right. I, I spent like yesterday uploading, you know, I spent eight hours uploading oral histories, you know. Mm-hmm. I just see this happen all the time. I don't even really call most of the projects I do digital humanities. It's just sort of like digital projects that need to live somewhere. And then no one else really provides any support. So it's kind of fallen to the library. And I have a background in in, in the humanities, so it's it's easy for me to to jump in that role, but I worry about you know doing it equitably going forward. 
Well, in any digital humanities project worth the title of humanities, we'll cite the people that are doing the work. They'll get some kind of recognition. Uh, and as Miriam says, they should get paid. So, you know, um, you know, I think that's just, I think that's just good practice. If people are working on your project, students, librarians, postdocs, whoever they are, they should be cited on the project at least. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I think most folks see that, but I think sometimes, you know, the marquee and, you know, ironically, I've discovered that the marquee folks that lead those projects know less about digital humanities than the people doing all the work. Like they know nothing. They don't know any tools. You know, you ask them about Gephi, they have no idea. And um, (laughs) it's just kind of an interesting phenomenon where we still have these academic structures, these academic class systems that have persisted for hundreds of years. And, you know, one of the things I think I'm especially invested in is thinking about ways that digital humanities can at least help maneuver us around some of that stuff. Because I think most folks I meet in DH are at least aware of it and interested in other models for the academy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, if you establish a labor system that adjusts the model for compensation on projects like that, that potentially shifts the model going forward. So like I work in knowledge synthesis a little bit. So if that changes the work that potentially digital humanities librarians are doing on digital humanities scholarship in the labor relationship, that potentially changes the labor that knowledge synthesis librarians are doing in the labor relationship as well, potentially. Um, I mean, depending on how you want to define a person's job or what deserves extra compensation on top of a person's basic job duties or whatever. But anyway, if, if grant funding is involved or whatever. Well, and I think yeah. here is a, cause you know, yeah. Whereas like usually knowledge synthesis is published where, or grant funded, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not always grant, you know, the grant funding is not always the same. I think like this is a question too about infrastructure. Um, because we've seen the way that perpetually grant funding projects has resulted in a sort of unhealthy binge and purge model of of projects and results in those situations where like the librarian is tasked with maintaining like an ancient server that no one thought about no one thought about who was going to take care of it like five or six years down the road. And yet if it gets turned off, then like someone's dissertation um, goes down the drain. I mean, this has happened. I've seen it happen dozens of times. And so we need to, um, this is a question for infrastructure. I mean, we really need to think about how we can make infrastructure that's enduring and persistent and reliable and equitable. Yeah, I was actually going to, I brought this up in my grant writing class and I asked specifically and no one got back to me. I'm going to the, I'm gonna have to bug the instructor. But yeah, it luck. was when you create a digital humanities project, when do you sunset it when you're right. planning the grant? Which is, you know, if it's, is it, how long do granting agencies want it up? Do they want it up five years? Do they want it up 10 years? They don't want to hear about it. I mean, they want you to have a plan for sustainability, but really, I mean, funding agencies aren't there to support something forever. Hmm? You know what I mean? So it's really not their concern after a few years. 
Yeah, I feel like there should just be a point where you you just like wrap it up uh, digitally and you put it in a repository and be like, if you want to access it, it's going to be a little bit harder, but it's long-term preservation now. Yeah, well, there are some people, thank God, who uh, are thinking about this with a lot more nuance and, and knowledge than I could bring to the situation. But but there are protocols for um, uh, for preserving various layers of the project, for example, keeping the data separate from the interface and maintaining accessibility in various ways. So yeah, it's totally possible to do, but someone has to be knowledgeable enough to plan for it. And someone has to be kind of recompensed for doing that work of preservation. Yep, just taking my notes, some notes for myself there. <laughs> and also, I'm going to ask about that uh, that student collaborator bill of rights because I'm sure the first the first response we're going to get is, "Can I see it?" Oh yeah, because I want to see it. So I'll get the link from you later. Well, here, yeah, let's. This will be an experiment because let's hope that it has retained its place on UCLA's servers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it should still be there. I was fixing some link rot today um, for like that when the NIH changed over to the new my NIH interface, whatever. And I just emailed our, our medical librarian. And I was like, do we still need this? And she said, <laughs> yeah, we still Purdue need it. Remember when the Purdue changed theirs? But I was like, do I still need to update started this? started on the National <laughs> Institutes of Health and everything that they have been up to. And they only wear running shoes. there's also a postdoctoral scholars bill of rights that's out there that was developed i think you know there's miriam's and then there was this other this other investment and and it was the same goal it was basically to to show scholars students you know these are what you these are some of the rights that you should demand uh, you know and it was kind of a guide toward don't take a postdoc that's going to have you build a dh center there's also right. <laughs> um, a little late for me. <laughs> tangentially related, but could definitely play into this. I know um, the Digital Library Federation, one of their working groups or something, made a um, a best practices for digital projects that definitely talks about, especially contingent labor and precarious labor. Like if you are going to have a grant funded position or student mm-hmm. labor, how best do you do that in your project especially if you are writing up a grant for it or designing the project or anything um i've been doing like digital curation uh uh, professional development for the past few months so justin i will find that and then link it because it's a very good document i feel like it could probably be very useful in the digital humanities even though it's geared towards um like librarians working in um, like digital collections i find that like a lot of the better informed things that I see come out of DLF. Don't you think so? You know, people who I mean, actually DLF is just get great. it. <laughs> yeah. Just a bunch of DILFs running around. I mean, great ideas. one time I was a, a DLF forum fellow and I posted mm. about it on social media. And people thought I was saying like DILF forum fellow. <laughs> That's okay too. I mean, it's I'm like, yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not totally wrong. <laughs> Um, I always, I always try to tell my students, like, look to DLF because I think you know that's a that's a place where good things are happening. Students, look up to your DILFs. <laughs> look to DILFs. Look to MILFs. <laughs> <laughs> There's the future. <laughs> where would we be, honestly? Indeed, indeed. I've got a quote from um, one of the the pieces. I probably should have put which one. 
but it's uh, many of the problems we have faced supporting quote unquote digital humanities work may stem from the fact that digital humanities projects in general do not need supporters. They need collaborators. Libraries need to provide infrastructure, access to digitization tools and servers, for example, to support digital humanities, but they need thoughtful, skilled, knowledgeable humanists to actually work on it. And so you were talking about infrastructure. And I think a lot of times when, when just in the library, when we talk about infrastructure, we just mean platforms. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to explain again and again that I need labor to do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's critical. Yeah, I think that that quote was from um, my piece about why it's so hard to do DH in the library, which I wrote when I was just a baby <laughs> postdoc. <laughs> um, uh, but it's true. I mean, you can get funding for you know software. You can get funding to like you know get ser- get server space for a certain amount of time. But it's the labor that you need that will that is you know paradoxically the hardest. To fund. And paradoxically, also, some of the least theorized. I mean, there are a few folks out there that theorize labor and labor relations, but they're few and far between. And none, nobody's really doing a, a sort of a theoretical Marxist approach toward labor and thinking about, you know, things like the, you know, the labor theory of value and how that impacts what we're getting out of our students and, and how we can use those tools that have been developed over hundreds of years to really ensure that we're working from solidarity and not from some kind of exploitative capitalist, you know, notion of labor. And so, you know, that's something that surprisingly, there's not a lot of work being done in and yet there's so much work that needs to be done in in developing these projects and we're bringing in so many people from the library's world and from students and all this and so you know it's a it's an opportunity i think but it's also sort of disturbing how few people are really talking about labor at a at a very deep level it's much more of a like oh yeah we should value labor and make sure people are treated well and and you know I was uh, in grad school. I was a union organizer for a couple of years, and and, and it's yeah, it's it's God bless those folks. But you know, we're seeing this insurgence of labor activism and union activism. And you know, if you're at a university that has a union, good for you. If you're not, uh, bummer. But why, how can we connect our DH organizations, which are so based in like our collective will to union organizations and really tie those things together in really interesting ways. And that's what I'd like to see happen is to see like the Association for Computers and the Humanities trying to team up with, you know, the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers and thinking about ways to promote solidarity and promote union activism. So, yeah, it's a... It's a growing area, and I think Miriam and I are sort of hoping to generate more interest, and we shared a vision statement with you, which is really, really nascent, but we're hoping folks will build it with us and join this sort of growing interest area and help us build this thing up. Yeah, hit us up. Yeah, I realized it's early days uh, when I, I saw the the paper, so I don't want to push you too hard on, like, <laughs> what, what have you already figured out? Um, but it is <laughs> interesting to... Yeah, I, it did get me thinking about like then the the grant writing class have just got me thinking about like the community aspect of it in terms of if I'm going to bring in someone, you know, I, I was writing down ideas and it's like, oh, should I get a graduate researcher for this? 
because that does bring money into the area, this, yeah. you know, is rural area that I work in. And, you know, the whole reason we have a medical school is because we just had no doctors, you know, so that's why we set up clinics all over the place that are run by the medical school. So, you know, if I'm bringing in this, this money from grants, how am I most ethically supposed to be using it? And that's weighing more heavily on me than just being a regular supervisor where I can be like, yeah, you know, your job's not doing too good. You should be applying like somewhere else. And, uh, Maybe they'll give you more money if uh, if you get the offer. I can do that easily, but as, as a supervisor, but as someone who's like, you're going to work here six months and then you're gone. That's a that's a whole different level of of trying to be like, how who's this benefiting? Mm. Well, and I think the fact that it's weighing heavily on you is already a good sign. That's a good starting point because it means you're thinking ethically about the role that you're taking on with this grant, and you know. There's only so much you can do with a grant, too. I mean, there are limitations on what you can spend money on. But I think being cognizant of the the lived material existence of the people that you're interested in hiring is a good start, at least for me, to think about like, okay, you know, you're a student. What do you need? What would make your life better? And can the grant help supply that? So maybe it's giving them a higher wage than the university's, you know, sort of expectation for a minimum wage. Or maybe it's figuring out if there's a way to, you know, provide some sort of mentorship or, or something as part of this project where they're getting something out of it as well. And, and you know, we're not going to solve any of these problems from within capitalism. I mean, that's just not likely to happen. But I think that those of us in library world and those of us in DH world can maybe think about ways to use our positions to help at least make it a little less onerous on those other folks that we are surrounded by. Yeah. Well, I think someone said something earlier about the fact that the market, the labor market, I mean, academia is falling apart and the labor market is trashed. And there's a real sense right now about people just like grabbing for any resources they can before they float away. And so in this environment, it's very difficult to do like long-term planning or to think hard about um, the kind of community we want to see. But, you know, to me, that's all the more reason that we have to do a better job of like looking to each other for support and, you know, community because uh, our institutions aren't going to, aren't going to do that for us. Yeah. Matt, I do like your idea of focusing more on labor. It's just kind of the drum I was beating during open education conference because, Open Education Conference was like two weeks, three weeks ago, and I presented there two years ago about labor in open education and um, got a packed room, which was great, and had a lot of people nodding while I was talking. And I was saying, you know, if you're doing these open pedagogy projects because you can't hire people to curate your OER, you're exploiting your students. Oof. And and most people were like, kind of like, I get it, like because they know the pressures that are on them to do this more affordable teaching style, but they don't have any labor. So they're rarely really tempted to just have their students kind of do it mm-hmm. as part of their assignments. And I think it was just, you know, I keep banging the drum. We need a conference about open education that just focuses on labor because people have, have gotten to the part where they've realized, okay, you shouldn't be like asking minoritized people, for free, like sensitivity reading, 
They, so they've got that down this year. They figured it oh, out. That's good. They, you know, <laughs> they're like, okay, we should compensate this labor. We're not gonna, but we should. We understand mm. this. Mm. So they figured that out. Bring in Robin D'Angelo. It'll be all be okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I guess. It's it's the problem where things happen at the at a conference, and you know they just reinvent the wheel every year, and yeah. it's it really frustrating. So it's really really want to uh, to radically just be like, you can only talk this year if you're going to talk about workflows and hiring and your actual retention of like black indigenous people of color in your institution. Otherwise you can't present. (laughs) So that's my dream. It does make me think about intersectionality though, because one of the things that I think I'm especially interested in in promoting a political economy of DH that's based in sort of a Marxist approach is recognizing intersectionality as a necessity for that kind of thing. Because it's it's become this weird phenomenon on the left. There are segments of the left, and I won't say who, but there are people out there who have become very sort of, you know, rigorously anti-identity politics. And, and there are reasons for that, and I don't want to go into all those reasons, and I understand some of the reasons, but I think that a better model is one in which we apply intersectionality in a way that thinks about economics alongside race and class and, and gender and sexual identity and all of that, those questions, and ability and all of those questions. And, and in particular, um, as these DH organizations have done a good job of, of uh, sort of alleviating some of that early white male energy – and have brought in a lot of this theoretical critical theory about race and gender and identity. Um, you know, I think now is the time to sort of connect those things to economics and to think about things like, you know, the fact that COVID-19 disproportionately affects, you know, black Americans, uh, economically than it does white Americans, you know, and, and the ways in which, uh, gendered labor is unequally distributed because folks, uh, you know, are having to, grapple with the pandemic and those are all economic questions and and right now the dh organizations just don't you know there's not a lot of energy around this so i'd like to see more discussion you know about those questions as well as the other stuff it's like people forget that identity politics comes out of um black feminist socialist theory right yes (laughs) it's a company river collective yeah (laughs) yeah i mean they they explicitly say we need a class-based race yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're um, we're really fortunate to have Robin D.G. Kelly at UCLA, and I I was reading something he wrote about identity and economics, like in the '80s, and it was like he laid it all out. He solved it. He like told us exactly what the fucking deal was. But it was you know this is like. 40 years ago, I'll send you the link, but it's so good. And it's like, the answer is so obvious that these two things are deeply intertwined. Um, But we've taught ourselves to be very bad at recognizing those points of intersection. Well, neoliberal capitalism has allowed us to do the same thing we do with DH, which is to say, if we just focus on this one identity question within a sort of capitalist frame, we don't have to think about how it's impacted economically. Right. Uh, and separating those things really does us a disservice because then we say, oh, well, if we just add more, you know, whatever, if we just mix in a little bit more diversity, we'll solve the problem. You know, if we elect a black president, we'll suddenly be free of racism. Uh, and that's obviously not the case. And, and divorcing all of those questions from economics and, and capitalism is just not going to help us solve any of it. 
Wait, I thought we did fix that. Oh. <laughs> oh, Carrie, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I meant to tell you, and I Ooh. forgot. <laughs> it was on my calendar, but I didn't put a. I didn't put a notice. Remember that guy from The Apprentice? Set yourself a reminder next time, Justin. <laughs> it was in the calendar. It just didn't have the 15 minute reminder. It does that sometimes. I love Tom Arnold. <laughs> oh, it's been a hard few she years. Used to be married to Roseanne, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, working class icon America's Roseanne. America's mom. <laughs> Kara, that's exactly how my muted laugh sounded. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm coughing. I decided to take up smoking again because um, uh, I, but okay. I am also saving for retirement. Oh. So I have mixed signals about how I feel about the future. <laughs> anyway, I get that. I get that. I did want to talk about radical digital humanities a bit because this is also a whole other, it could be a whole other episode, honestly, but I didn't want to leave it out because this is really interesting. So, Mary, you, you you gave us some articles that talked about radical digital humanities and how things don't really fit into the tools we use. So, we like to make interactive maps and stuff like that. And the, the concepts of time, space, and uncertainty don't map very well when you're trying to do a PowerPoint. Uh, so, could you talk about that? And could you also <laughs> explain uh, topo time? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not sure I'm the best person to explain topo time, but I, I can talk about that that bigger question. Well, like El Topo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> like Alejandro Uterowski? No. <laughs> so, like, we know, moving through the world, that gender is fluid and non-binary and can sort of change from moment to moment and place to place. Race in some ways is similar, you know, two people can look at the same person and see, see race in two different ways. A lot of these sort of categories that we encounter, I don't need to tell you this, your librarians are, are quite fluid. And yet most of the tools that we're given to work with ask us to categorize entities in very uh, straightforward, binary, kind of non-fluid ways. And so there are many, many examples of this. Uh, you know, if it, well, for our metadata librarian, I mean, you've, you, it's gotten better, but I know that um, I was looking at like linked data ontologies and noticing that like the, there is one UID for male that everything that's male has to point to. And it's like, that's so weird, you know. Yeah, like I, I'm even on the editorial board of the Homosaurus. Oh which yeah, I've is seen like that. A, yeah, cool. so I'm on that editorial board, and even that, it's so hard to do the kind of work that we do because it's like by the very act of trying to define something, you're putting boundaries on it, right. and refusing that fluidity it's, on it. So like our our very thing of having a queer linked data vocabulary is antithetical to its own project. It's it's a the, weird yeah. contradiction to existence. It's it's it, it's a it's a um, it's a question that will hurt your head if you think about it long enough. Um, but that's also the nature of data. Like you have the option of like lumping things into like inadequate giant categories, or you have the option of like parsing things so finely that you risk cutting off part of someone's identity, for example. Or saying if someone is bi, they can't also be poly, and who knows 
how people think about their um, sexuality. So, so, so in my mind, like this, this kind of fluidity and contradictoriness is something that the humanities actually is pretty good at thinking about. Like we have ways to talk about um, the fact that categories matter in the sense that of course, like whether or not you're black matters for like um, inherited wealth. But of course, also there are gradations and various ways of thinking about race that defy those simple categories. So both things exist at the same time. And so what if we were to take on that challenge of thinking about a rhetoric for digital work, for, for, for data-driven work that could accommodate that kind of nuance and, and complexity? And I don't, you know, I, I think it's really fun to think about. I don't think that um, I've devised any answers, but imagine, for example, a network graph that looked one way you know, if you're viewing it from the point of view of the U.S. Census, and another way if you're viewing it from the point of view of just like a person who's part of an extended family with with family in, in different parts of the world. I mean, that could be really interesting because perspective changes depending on where you stand. But the tools that we have like purport to a kind of universality that and a, and a kind of neutrality that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. So I'll pause there and see if that makes any sense. I just wanted to ask about um, self-ID because that was kind of what you're talking about, like the census data versus yeah. self-identification. Well, and even data. on census data, um, if you ID your nationality as Australia and it automatically classifies you as white. Mm. Oh, whoops. That was like a twenty. That like actually just Yikes. came out recently on like a census data interpretation. Um, yeah. So if you there's a guy, you look like Paul Hogan. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, but if there's a there's a guy Hansi Lo Wong who's the NPR census expert and like his reporting, I've been following his reporting for like the last like three years. And, like, he has, like, this whole Twitter thread of, like, census facts. And one of them is that, like, if you check the Australian box as your nationality, they report you as white. Wow. That is mind-blowing. I gotta, I gotta follow that up. Uh, that yeah. sounds fascinating. So, really good demography information on there. <laughs> yeah. As a huge census geek and as a huge demography geek, um, and yeah, like I, I, yeah, I work with like a lot of public health people who are always doing like. There's a lot of crossover into the like. I end up doing DH things even though I don't work with the H. Like I do digital public health projects and digital. Like that's a I I do a lot of stuff like that with folks. So we are often digging into census data and stuff. And so I'm like, this kind of stuff adds up. We're like, we're doing, you know, yeah. lead mapping and things like that. So they yeah. do stuff like that with our digital humanities center and things like that, where we're doing equity based like DH stuff, or we've had a lot of like from the university of Minnesota, like the mapping inequality project mm-hmm. where they're doing some really cool stuff with, like the redlining maps and the Sanborn insurance maps with like mm-hmm. doing really, really deep, like street level, like block by block analysis 
on all kinds of deep level data on historic. Uh, anyway, they came and did like a really cool webinar with our DH lab, really cool DH project that you should check out if you're interested in um, equity based DH stuff. Anyway, I'm rambling. <laughs> it's interesting what Miriam's talking about because we did a session today in my DH class on uh, mapping technology. We're looking at story maps, and I always have them watch that uh, West Wing clip about the Peter's projection map versus the Mercator projection map, where they're basically like the Mercator projection map. Did you just out like, yourself as a Sorkin liberal? <laughs> oh, Matthew. Yeah, I, I, I had to do a, a proper, like, uh, you know. I had to like explain the ideology of the West Wing for like twenty minutes before <laughs> I could show that clip. That's good though. I didn't know about that clip. I'm gonna have to. Yeah, and it's great. And basically, the clip. I mean, they're laughing at these people. They're like the the Center for Concerned Cartographers or something. But they're basically like the Mercator map is a colonialist map, and they go yeah, through this wonderful up. description of why. And I was like, oh yeah, and by the way, uh, now we're gonna use the Mercator map and GIS to like do stuff right yeah we're stuck with these tools that use not only the mercator projection but just like cartesian coordinates in general and so uh so one benefit i think of being in a digital humanities class is that you can trace the genesis of of these tools all the way back to you know the origin of empire and then see how cartesian coordinates are then very directly translated into into the GIS software that we use today. And That's so much better than using Aaron Sorkin, I guess. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Just do a walk and talk. <laughs> yeah, do a walk and talk. <laughs> Fast talking. It's going. Get some banter. Get your banter. Get some bants going. <laughs> I think like in the, you know, when I came to DH, maybe in the like, late 2000s or something, there was a lot of excitement about like big DH projects that were immediately legible or tool building projects that people could immediately understand. A lot of respect for that because it's not easy to build shit like that. But, you know, uh, one thing that I've kind of appreciated about being at UCLA and being among the colleagues that I have is that there's also a lot of interest or there's a growing amount of interest, I think, in projects that are just like weird that don't make sense at first view that make people mad that people find frustrating um, Sorkin archives <laughs> wow that could be really interesting actually that actually could <laughs> <laughs> my god the west wing nuts <laughs> You, uh, Miriam, you were talking one in your paper about a digital project that you show your students because it's frustrating to navigate. Yeah, they hate it. Which one is that? <laughs> it's the knotted line, although I think lately it hasn't been working. This, uh -oh. is, this is our old like sustainability project. Um, but the interface uh, relies on, you know, your ability to like discover points that um, only expand when you hover over them by accident and it drives them fucking crazy. They hate the sound it makes. They hate like how there's no menu, but it's a great occasion. I'm not saying like that automatically makes it good, but it's a great occasion to stop and say, wait, where did we all say that like um, transparency is the best attitude to have for an interface? 
Like, I don't remember agreeing to that. Um, you know, I mean... More obfuscation. More obfuscation. I don't know. I don't know. We talk about <laughs> writing histories in exciting and nonlinear, non-chronological ways. Why don't we think about interface in that mm. way? Um, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to do it, but why haven't we experimented with it a little bit more? Yeah, plus, if you, if you write about it, you have so many... Opportunities to make references to Kafka that people are going to enjoy. So you can talk about like, the castle. Oh. Yeah. oh, yeah. They'll love that. Sadie, are you muted? Fuck. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, this may be a reach, but um, kind of talking about how like frustration is built in deliberately sometimes for certain reasons. I was watching a video game stream of Silent Hill 3. Which, yeah, um, was designed to be frustrating, like, via the controls. So, uh, like, as you're navigating through this, like, you know, mm -hmm. horrifying hellscape, you are not supposed to be able to, like, turn the camera really easily because walking into a room and seeing, you know, your character first most and not actually seeing the room at large it was part of building the suspense of it. But when they remastered it, they took all of that design decision out and everybody hates the remastered version of the game. Interesting. So, yeah. So when you talk about like interfaces, there is that sort of experiential mm -hmm. aspect to it, that simplicity in, you know, UX is not always necessarily the best facet to view it from, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we've all read books that like, drive us fucking crazy and we want to throw across the room and yet they've broken our heads. Like they're, they're so House good. House of leaves. Yeah. <laughs> so, so why, I don't know. Why not think about that? I'm sorry. You were going to say something. Oh no, you go, y'all continue. I was just raising my hand to let people know that I had a thought. When Please. I just had a weird thought moment that when you said house of leaves i was like i've heard about house of leaves from somewhere like that's today. my favorite and then book. i was like oh wait it was from episodes of this podcast that i was listening to uh -huh. earlier today where you were talking about house of leaves that's awesome or the original house of leaves hopscotch <laughs> by Julio Cortazar. yes hopscotch hopscotch bitch the, i wonder where it is on my bookshelves so i'm uh, working on a second master's right now and the director of the program i'm in he uh studies like latin american hypertext text wow. and so i'm like yes yeah, scott he's the one who told me about hopscotch um so, so cool. i've been like, getting into that lately um oh arthur you're yeah so i i got through that i did that shit like in um when i was yeah. a pretentious asshole in college so i'm still a pretentious asshole so. <laughs> i think you were the one talking about the large books phase where you were reading infinite jest and oh yeah I, yeah, yeah. I'm one of those people where it's like I um if I if I feel like I'm fighting a book that means like like I love like I'm very competitive I'm an asshole and so to channel that in healthy ways I like reading watching and listening to things that are kind of uh, complicated because then it feels like I win. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Yeah, yeah that's book. how I get it out. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, what I was gonna say is um so as part of the second degree I'm I'm working on so uh. As as y'all probably know, like librarians, are, like our terminal degree is a master's. There is a PhD, but most of us just get masters. But our library faculty, we are tenure track. But to get tenure, we have to get a second master's. So that's what I'm doing right now, and I'm taking a yeah. So that's fun being a faculty member while also <laughs> working on a second master's. Um, I'm in a feminist theory seminar right now, 
And one thing um, I've really appreciated it and we've been talking about is, you know, how things build and critique on other things. And, you know, it's a safe space to critique these theories. And one that we keep bringing up is Audre Lorde's, like, you cannot dismantle the master's right. house with right. the master's tools. And actually, a lot of the critiques of that, especially um, we recently talked about Carve Wilson, who does performance art mm. uh, with Virginia Woolf. He's a Wolf scholar. Yeah. And he talks one of the things, like his point is like, okay, if I don't have the master's tools, what tools do I have? Because in the the world that we're in now, it's like like with colonialism, we don't know what a world without colonialism would be like at this point. And so a lot of these projects that y'all are bringing up in this discussion that we're having are very much reminding me of how imperfect a lot of our tools are, but then how to recognize what that imperfection and what those flaws are, and then to work with them or to point them out. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, um, especially when you were talking about like the maps and how like this is an inherently like this framework that we're working in is inherently of a, an imperialist mm-hmm. viewpoint. But what does that tell us? And I feel like if the digital humanities stays like does a lot of that work, then that says really good things about what it can do and where it can go and maybe bring people out of this conception that I had of it of, of well, it's just people text mining hottie trust and you know yeah. until the cows come home <laughs> text you know, mining for hotties, hotties. Uh, <laughs> trust that <laughs> That's, i just call that going to the library i'll yeah. text mine for hotties, <laughs> for hotties. <laughs> better trust better it, trust it. <laughs> i think you know what that's why I'm sure Matthew has had the same experience. I love teaching digital humanities because like students come in the room and they already know about intersectionality. Like they just expect it. They expect us to have a critique. They, you know, they expect us to not be idiots about race and ability and and gender. And so they, they have no trouble seeing these problems with the tools. And so, um, they're not going to they're not going to accept a digital humanities that like doesn't critique. So, I yeah, I just I love hearing what they have to say about it. Well, Jay, what you were saying reminds me of, uh, you know, the famous Frederick Jameson quote that was said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. I'm reading and, Mark Fisher right now, so yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> You've exited the vampire's castle. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, but I think that's a similar thing. It's it's hard to imagine a world in which we could have, um, you know, complete tools that would respond to all of our ethical and social concerns. And so the question then becomes, how do we deform or disrupt the tools that we have? You know, how can we take infrastructure and think about new ways of, you know, mixing it up or breaking it or disrupting it. And, you know, I think about some of the work in like developing a queer operating system, for example, that that was really prominent for a while. You know, those kinds of creative approaches, I think, are really interesting for pushing digital humanities beyond just like, oh, I built a new archive of, you know, whatever. More infrastructure weeks. (laughs) The people demand them. them. More infrastructure yes. weeks. It's like Shark Week, but Shark Infrastructure Week. <laughs> infrastructure for sharks. Is that one app that tracks More all the sharks oceans. and then people comment like <laughs> "Yes, Queen, go to Visa." Like, is that a digital humanities project? I mean, <laughs> absolutely. It it's like memes. Memes are digital project. humanities. Mapping which sharks eat what 
internet lines at the bottom of the ocean win. <laughs> Those sharks are my heroes. I will say, okay, who's as someone what? who's been doing DH for, you know, quite a while now, I will get a little salty when, uh, when people tell me they're doing digital humanities and I do not believe that to be the case, <laughs> you know, I will, I will, because you know what? It is a thing. It does Spill have the like, tea, Miriam. it has literature, it has a literature, it has, you know, um, some like canonical things that are important to know. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I respect all kinds of digital practice, but um, when, I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's disrespectful, I think sometimes for people to like walk in the room and be like, nobody knows what DH is. So like what I do, which is like curate memes on um, TikTok, that that is digital humanities. And that's something, but it's not in conversation with the field. And yeah. So, There's, yeah. there are lines and I, I'm a defender of the DH. <laughs> Thank you. Like I, I will go <laughs> up to bat for DH and I always have. Even as someone who, like, very early on in their career, like, dabbled in DH and, like, very quickly kind of abandoned it. Like, I just kind of admired it from afar. But, like, I, 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 I've always got up to bat for it. Like, I, you know, and I, I think I very much understand what it is, too. Like, I could definitely define it. If you, if you put me in a box and, like, that was how I had to get out of the, like, escape hatch. <laughs> That's how we inaugurate new DH scholars, actually. We get you, it's like, a, it's like you know, a scene from Skulls. We put you in a dark room, we all wear yeah. robes, and you have to define it, you know, yeah. and we all chant. I think I or could like do that. It's like in Star Trek with that one unbeatable tap, like, thing that they made Kirk do or whatever. I forget even what it's, um... Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi Maru, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could do that. You could do that. I think I could do Just that. Cheat. Yeah. Navigate this map without clicking yeah. it twice. <laughs> um, the Kobayashi Maru projection for maps. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're over an hour. I want to always close on like an action-oriented question, although I think we've kind of already gotten a lot of it. You've talked about organizing with professional organizations. Do you feel confident in doing this? Because when we talk about here we talk about you know organizing with the ALA. We're always kind of pessimistic about it. <laughs> yeah, that laugh says a lot. Yeah, we're not gonna do that. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think that Miriam and I would agree that a lot of the DH organizations are primed for this stuff. It's just that it hasn't yet percolated up to the surface, and so I think I'm very confident we'll be able to get something going. I don't know what it will be. But I think that folks will recognize the value of what we're, we're talking about as we do it. Now, there are um, certain realities that may impede that. And I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm being too optimistic, you know. So there may be ideological reasons why this hasn't happened yet. And, you know, I like to speculate sometimes what those could be, why it is easier to focus on certain topics and push those topics and not on economics and questions of solidarity. But uh, for now, I remain hopeful. And, you know, some of the organizations in DH are really, really, um, 
you know, progressive and interesting and and doing a lot of really good work. So I think it's just a question of connecting the dots and pushing forward. And, and I was, I was inspired by, you know, the, some of the reactions we got to our conference panel at the Association for Computers and the Humanities, which had a pretty good crowd of folks who were like radical and ready to talk about this stuff in a way I did not expect. You know, I thought a panel titled political economy of digital humanities would have like two people. Um, but it had a pretty good crowd, and they were excited. So that's a good sign. Yeah, that's exciting. Hi, I want to talk about the Grandrisa for – this is more of a comment <laughs> than a question. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of afraid that would actually happen, but it didn't. Yeah, and, and to tie up one last loose end, when you were talking about why aren't these organizations getting on board with graduate unionization, it's because the, they're the – supervisors and bosses of those graduate assistants. And I think that's, uh, you, you've got to do solidarity or uh, solidarity organizing and, and especially bringing in like adjuncts and temporary employees, that kind of the people who are being proletarianized the most quickly and effectively are also going to be the people who are going to build community solidarity. Mm. Yeah. One of the things I always try to remember is that like my intellectual commitments can help me figure out where I want to spend my political energy, but I am not in any way expert at organizing. Like there are other people who spent their lives learning to do that. So while I may love to walk in to a classroom and stand up at the head of the room and take over, like that is not my role when it comes to organizing. My role is to like, listen to what other people have to tell me. But also, you know, one of the first things I learned about organizing when I was doing some, you know, graduate level union organizing was that the most important thing is to have the conversations with folks and to go talk to people and say, you know, what are the material conditions of your life? Are they working for you? In what ways do you feel oppressed? And can we collaborate in solidarity to figure out how to benefit all of us? And I think those conversations, even if you're not an organizer, having that conversation with people who are adjuncts or staff or librarians or undergraduates is such a key conversation to be having. And and just having that conversation alone could produce a radical reorganization of the the conditions in which we're all sort of laboring and working together. And and I think that the more we can encourage tenure track faculty and administrators to think of, you know, those people underneath them as their colleagues and comrades rather than some sort of problem to deal with, the more we're going to see a better and just uh, academy. Now I think you are being optimistic. Oh, that was inspiring. <laughs> I thought that was inspiring. <laughs> Well, if you can't, if you can't have some utopian fantasy to work towards, what do you have, right? We demand eight days off a week. Yes. <laughs> Only by imagining the impossible can we achieve what is possible. Correct. That yeah. Oscar Wilde anarchist book I read it ended that way. So. <laughs> okay, I think that's everything. Unless um, anyone had any final questions for our guests. I just wanted to say I'm new to your podcast. I hadn't heard of it uh, mm-hmm. until Miriam suggested I come on with her. And uh, I started listening to it today, and I'm a huge fan. So I'm going to start sharing it with folks I trust yeah. anyway. Um, and uh, and I just I was consuming episodes this afternoon and just loving it. And, you know, I thought, wow, this is, I'd never even heard of this. So uh, I will definitely be uh, promoting your work and sharing it widely and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I just Who got knew the warm there fuzzies. A, a leftist library uh, workers podcast. Thanks. I did not know this existed, so it's so cool. It's so cool that you're doing this. I'm going to tell all my students for sure. Oh, thanks. 
Thank Justin. He was the one that dragged us all into it. Yeah. <laughs> we started we in friends. what, February? Oh, wow. We started yeah. in January. January? Okay. Yeah. That's it's awesome. almost a year. I'm not so, paying yeah, for this. So, yeah, this podcast is about making friends on the internet. Yep. <laughs> Forcing and our hyper-focuses onto other people. Yes. <laughs> Traumatizing people. Like, Aww. I'm really getting into creative coding right now, so I'm like, I wonder if there's a we can get Dan Schiffman on. <laughs> do it! <Yeah. laughs> like, learning processing. I'm like, oh, what do we do? Yeah. There's a lot of processing people at UCLA. I just share strange things with people. <laughs> 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 and, and of course, we're about the book. What, what was the leaves book? That's the third thing we're about. House now. of Leaves. House, House, of, House of, of Leaves. We're House of Leaves podcast. So yeah. making friends on the internet, focusing our, our forcing our hyper focuses on other people, and House of Leaves. Nice. Well, I look forward drops. to more of that content. So as do I. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for coming on. You and um, is there anything upcoming? Of course, I'll retweet any work that comes out soon. But if there's anything you want people in particular to be looking out for? Well, I know everyone really, really loves to read academic articles about global supply chains. Like, that's everybody's Oh, like, I read what you were saying thing. about SAP. I've used <laughs> oh, yeah. that before. Like, I worked retail up until, like, July. That's and I've awesome. used SAP before. Yep. Um, and that product is fucking terrible. Yes. Um, so, in all of our favorite... Um, zine <laughs> postmodern culture i have a new piece out about uh supply chains and the software that supports them so you know read to your heart's content there's so much there can't so wait there about no chains. i was like i was like sap oh this is triggering because i used to do order fulfillment um that was like one of my specialties was uh like buy online pick up in store order fulfillment oh fuck like online order fulfillment and uh like if I couldn't fill something like on third pass, I would be like, I have to sap something and we would have to check <laughs> containers. Oh, wow. be like, oh say, last scene on. <laughs> and it would be like last, like item last seen on. And it would give you like oh, item so level information. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I took the same training that supply chain managers take to learn SAP, to learn the supply yeah. chain module. So yeah. man, anytime you want to talk, <laughs> but I know what it's like as like a store level employee. That's fascinating. Yeah, that, yeah. It's maybe like I how I interacted you, with it, and like I, I didn't even have a login for it, so I'd have to have someone else log in for me, and then yeah. ch- like type in the information. Like they'd type in the SKU and do like searches for me and stuff. That's so and, cool. And then we also ran store inventory on it too, mm-hmm. or like there was like some cross inventory systems. Anyway, and then there was also like. Because it was outdoor retail too, and especially when we started having supply chain issues um, during COVID. It sounds like an amazing job. Uh, yeah, I worked at REI for four years. Oh, oh God. Yeah. 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 That's like being Elizabeth Warren staffer or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It kind of is. Uh, wow. But you don't have any regrettable tattoos, do you, Carrie? <laughs> I have no tattoos. <laughs> okay. So I'm afraid of commitment. Oh, um, but I have a lot of gear. Not house elite. So. I gave my copy to my nephew because it was time to move on. <laughs> Mine sits on my bedside. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Justin. <laughs>
Anyway, I was really excited about the supply chain stuff. Oh, well, yes. As a supply chain fan. Well, I mean, aren't we all? Big fan of supply chains. Aren't we Huge all? fan. Huge fan of the supply chain. Huge, Jerry. Huge fan of supply chain. Huge fan. Well, thank you so much for having us. This was really, really fun. Thanks y'all for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's mm. been super interesting. Good night.